Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 14th, 2011, and my guest is Garrett Jones of George Mason University. Garrett, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's great to be back. Our topic for today is the economics of stimulus. Garrett, the Mercatus Center here at George Mason recently published your study with Daniel Rothschild, Did Stimulus Dollars Hire the Unemployed? And we're going to talk about that study, but I want to start with talking first about Keynesian stimulus more generally. Sure. How, how is it supposed to work? Well, the, the Keynesian story is that uh, in, the sh- in the short run, economies sometimes get tied up in knots, where there are a lot of workers, a lot of firms that just aren't going to be very useful, very productive for a while. Um, they're unemployed workers, unemployed firms. And the Keynesian story is that while the market is figuring out what to do, while the market is healing itself, while prices are adjusting and wages are adjusting. Or not. Or not. They're skeptical sometimes. Yes, there's some that. skeptical. But the, the traditional new Keynesian story, which I thought of as the mainstream view for decades, was that in the short run, um, the government might be able to go in and use those, those workers um, while the market is figuring out what it's going to do two or three years down the road. So in a sense, this is quite similar to the old debate uh, known as the socialist calculation debate. So back in the early 20th century, uh, Mises and Hayek uh, were engaged in a debate, in a debate with um, socialist-leaning economists the socialists said that uh, markets obviously don't work very well. We see these recessions, these crises happening every once in a while. It seems like there's a lot of unemployment. Um, maybe, maybe conscious planning can do better. Maybe government can come in and do better. The um, Austrians, led by Mises and Hayek, argued that no, the knowledge actually wasn't there. The government would not be able to acquire enough knowledge about how to use workers wisely, about how to meet consumer demands wisely. To but be the able trade-offs to were between different consumer goods, different production techniques. Exactly. Without prices, they couldn't do that. And they couldn't calculate any sort of artificial prices. There was hope for a while that with sufficient computing power and time, that, of course, time maybe might be 70 years. So that would rule out activist government policy on that ground. Sure. And, and, and so Mises and Hayek argue that the knowledge just wasn't there to be able to run anything like a modern economy um, without the price system. Um, or just to comment on that, the, the knowledge might be there, but it couldn't be gathered that's, you're, to, exactly, one, that's a much to better one way to put it. particular decision-maker committee or body. Mm-hmm. So the knowledge is dispersed among millions of individuals, which made it impossible to be pulled together without the, the way the price system does it. Mm-hmm. And the, the Keynesian story about short-run stimulus is basically concedes the point that, oh, in the long run, we know markets do a better job. But in the short run, in the few months after a financial crisis, for instance, when a million or so workers get laid off quite quickly, uh, maybe the government can go in and use those workers for a while on some projects to build some roads, to build some schools, to run some elder care centers. Um, during that time when the market is sort of figuring itself out. So while the market is healing itself, the government can come and use these workers um, without too much of a cost to society. Because they're slack resources. They're, they're sitting around unemployed, literally, in case of workers. But mm-hmm. there's machines that are, quote, unemployed. They're, just, they're not producing. 
So uh, when there's been this drop in growth, there's a chance to get things – I always think of it as there's a chance for that to get things going again. It's interesting that you called it during this interim period while the market figures things out. I always think of Keynesians arguing that by giving these workers money – and unemployment insurance, uh-huh, by the way, uh-huh. is invoked as a job creator on these mm-hmm. on these grounds. They'll take the money. They'll spend it. This multiplier effect will kick in, and that will cause the broken markets to – heal themselves. That's to use one more metaphor. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right that a lot of people use that, especially, uh, non, I'd say non-economists use that argument more often, this this jump-starting metaphor, that the government yeah. can jump-start a recession. But serious economists, um, like even the folks at the CBO, when they put out their models uh, for how the stimulus is supposed to affect the economy, their assumption is that without the stimulus, the economy would fix itself over the course of a few years, but the government could help sort of close the gap in the meantime. So there's this middle period of weakness that the government, where government action could, in theory, come in and, um, and grow the economy for the short run. But the way you're describing it, the reason to do that is twofold. Mm-hmm. One is compassion for the workers who, in the meanwhile, have nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And second is we may as well get some productive use out of them in the form of bridge building, etc. Yes. So um, in the extreme, they might claim that it's a truly a free lunch. At least it might be a low-cost lunch. And that's the, that's the claim of Keynesianism, is that grab some unemployed workers, grab some unused machines, uh, let's use them to build something useful. Even if it's not perfect, it's better than if they just sat at home watching TV. But Keynes himself and modern uh, defenders of Keynes, and I'm thinking of, of Joseph Stiglitz because I heard him say this uh, in congressional testimony, they believe that digging holes and filling them back in will help the economy. So they are invoking some kind of jumpstart multiplier, not just, well, let's get something productive out of these folks in the meanwhile. That's true. And the the CBO does use multipliers as well, right? And they use multipliers that are bigger than one for a lot of um, uh, activity. So, yes. So so Keynesians think that there will be these additional spillover effects because if if I get some extra money, I'll go down to the store and buy some stuff. And And the store will order some more and then the factory – We'll mm-hmm. go hire some back, or the produ- producer will hire some more workers, right? Yes. And Samuelson, uh, one of the one of Keynes's uh, big, most important disciples, um, who really mathematized a lot of Keynes's ideas, he pointed out this would happen with firms too. He says, you know, firms have a tough time getting money in a recession. So if the government is giving them a lot of business, they'll take some of that extra money and use it to buy more machines and more equipment and build up a capital stock. So Keynesian theory, um, at least the sophisticated Keynesianism of the fifties and sixties. Uh, was not really this solely consumer-focused theory that a lot of us think of it as. They kept an attention to uh, what was going on inside of businesses. Of course, in today's world, businesses are sitting on a lot of cash. Indeed. And so capital access to capital is not their – is not holding them back. Is that correct? At least not the biggest firms, no. For yeah. the biggest firms, that's – but that's what we expect to happen in recessions is that the biggest firms um, have this sort of big stock, this big war chest that they sit on. And it's the small and medium-sized firms that really have a tough time getting access to capital because banks uh, banks aren't sure who to trust. Yeah, because they're nervous and their own balance sheets might be in trouble, which is particularly mm-hmm. true right now. So uh, in February 2009, President uh, signed the – American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Is that the right title? Yes, ARRA. But we're going to call it the stimulus. Yes. Just for shorthand, which mm-hmm. is something of, I guess, a optimistic um, uh, description of it. It is what the defenders called it until it didn't seem to have worked mm-hmm. as well as they hoped it would. Yeah. Now the president does not use the S word, but 
uh, when he passed it, it was called stimulus. So just to avoid having to say era or which is hard to, on the ear or the longer term, we'll call it the stimulus. Okay, that sounds – that's fair. It's unfortunate these words get politicized, but that's part of the name of the game. Yeah. So passes this law uh, – passes this legislation, excuse me, and uh, a set of predictions were made at the time uh, about the impact on output, on employment, employment. Uh, famous study was done suggesting that if it weren't passed, unemployment would go over, I think, 8%. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was passed. It went over 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and the defenders say, well, it would have been even higher mm-hmm. uh, if it hadn't been passed. Uh, and I, you know, one argument uh, – that's one argument. The other is it made it worse. Uh, how would we possibly adjudicate those two viewpoints? It's right? real- you have smart economists on both sides. Mm-hmm. Your study we'll talk about in a minute is – is not sophisticated econometrics, but a great, which is I think is a plus, but Thanks. others would say it, it's, it limits its application. But certainly there's been a lot of sophisticated econometrics done on both sides of the fiscal stimulus jobs debate. What have we learned? Have we learned anything other than that economists don't agree on this? Well, this is a tough one. So I, I'm a fan of using econometrics judiciously and cautiously, especially if you can find anything that looks like a natural experiment. So um, wars have been a tragic natural experiment for uh, the U.S., um, and sometimes they happen at fairly random times. They happen pretty randomly, uh, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, um, the wars after 9-11. And uh, so economists have been able to use these, um, especially Valerie Ramey, one of my mentors at the University of California, San Diego. Um, she used these wars as a natural experiment to see what happened to the economy when the government just goes and buys a lot of stuff really quickly. Especially when it's a large amount of stuff. A large amount. Right. So the econometric – standard econometric analysis, which is – tries to simulate a natural experiment, right? Mm-hmm. It tries to uh, look at changes in government spending to see if – to try to tease out the impact on, say, employment, quote, holding everything else constant. Yes. Which can't be done. You, you hope that the things you've isolated and chosen in your data set are enough to, to isolate the impact of, of the government spending itself. But the idea of a natural experiment is that it's, it's an exogenous, meaning outside the, the model itself, large, ideally, impact. And so what, what does she find? Well, her big innovation is that she realized that what's, what matters for business people is not when the government spending actually happens. What matters is when business people realize the spending is going to happen, when they expect it to happen. So what she did is – Why is that important? Um, because businesses will start ramping up in advance of the actual spending. So you don't want to look at when it actually happens because then you might find no effect of the spending falsely, right? Yes. As when, in our interviews, in our stimulus interviews, one of our uh, government contractors told us, he says, in order to get one of the government contracts, you already had to be at the trough waiting. Mm-hmm. And so businesses have to plan in advance for something like doubling their workforce or expanding business capacity. Um, so what she did is she actually looked at Business Week magazine articles to see when um, – the readers of Business Week, when the reporters of Business Week foresaw that the government was going to be ramping up military spending. And she noticed that that happened quite a, quite a bit before the actual spending increased. And so she used the Business Week dates as a measure of when the market became aware of extra government spending. 
And that was to make sure that she didn't underestimate the impact, right? Cause exactly. Because if, if you ramp up early and then the spending – you get ready early or even better, you might start hiring early mm-hmm. and, and buying machinery and then the actual check comes to pay for it. It'll look like the check had no effect because you'd already responded to the to the stimulus. Yes. So anticipation effects, expect, expectation effects are a big part of doing serious economics, paying attention to the fact that business people and consumers look to the future when making their decisions today. And what she found was uh, multi- uh, a multiplier that was between zero and one. So in other words, yes, the economy grew after um, a defense ramp up, but the private sector shrank. Offsetting. Some of the offsetting some of the stimulus. So the optimistic Keynesian view is that the government buys a billion dollars of stuff, and then consumers go buy an extra half billion dollars of stuff. And then the people who got that money, or you've you've gone through all the cycles. It adds up to another half billion. It could exactly yes. Perhaps businesses buy some extra stuff to build up their business capacity. Um, But what she found was instead that the when government grew, the private sector shrank, Um, and. That's, that's important. That's an important benchmark. I'd say a number of the recent studies that have used uh, more sophisticated econometrics have found numbers that are about in that range, where, yes, the government does grow the overall economy, but at the expense of shrinking the private sector slightly. So if you end up with more tanks but fewer refrigerators because the government, say, bid up the price of steel, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. example I always use is that there were a lot of unemployed workers before World War II, and in any war, there's always some unemployment – so the government comes in, puts them to work through conscription until mm-hmm. recently. They, they draft and they force them into the army. So unemployment goes down, which is easy to do. It's easy to, to reduce unemployment if you can force people to join the army. Then the question is, what do you do with them? Well, if you haven't put them in tanks, you go have to buy some more tanks. And people say, well, that's good because that, that increases the – it puts money in the, in the pockets of the tank makers. Well, it does, but it also drives up the demand for steel. Mm-hmm. And if steel's not unemployed – which it often is not, yes, yeah. pushes up the price of steel, discourages private users of steel. And so getting more tanks in return for less, fewer refrigerators, it, it's a bigger measured economy, but it's depressing. It's not good. It's, it's a genuine trade-off. It becomes a cruel trade-off at this point. It's not if a free it, lunch. It's not a free lunch. And it's something that people should think seriously about before diving into something like that. What was the reaction to her work? Well, um... I th- and when did it come out, actually, I should say, ask first. Actually, she early versions of it she was presenting back in the late 1990s, and uh, it was eventually published. And I'd say it's been, he- it's been he- heavily cited, and these uh, dates, now known as the Ramey Shapiro dates, um, get used in a lot of work. Um, and I wish her work had gotten more mainstream attention because, unfortunately, we spend a lot of our time talking about World War II. And uh, people make the point, uh, free market economists make the point that, the, that consumer spending shrank during World War II. And Keynesians make the point that, yeah, but there was rationing on consumption during World War II. Consumers weren't allowed to buy stuff. So World War II is, a, is an interesting experiment. It's our biggest one. Well, but, yeah, but there were a lot of government <laughs> rules there. Yeah, the, the rationing is – the reason it was rationing is because there wasn't enough steel to go around to build the refrigerators. So the government decided that rather than let the price of refrigerators go really high, they would ration them. So I, I've never understood that argument as a, uh, a defense of Keynesianism during World War II. Uh-huh. I think the, the, the more important point is that World War II, America's intervention in World War II was, was widely anticipated. Mm-hmm. So the date you would use is very difficult to, to figure out for mm-hmm. assessing the impact of World War II. 
came out of the blue. Mm-hmm. So no one was thinking, boy, soon the United States is going to attack Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think a little, it's probably a little cleaner. And similarly with the Korean War, quite a surprise. Not well, so, yeah, some relatives at least. The, the to, date of the, the yeah, exact the date, date definitely. And um, so the nice thing about the Ramey dates is that it gets us away from having to talk about this one case study, and we can look at a number of events that have happened to um, a, ma- a massive economy uh, when government spending ramped up dramatically. Now, Robert Barrow has done related work, found mm-hmm. similar mm-hmm. effects of, of – he's focused on war as an exogenous, mm-hmm. uh, sudden, uh, unexpected increase in government spending. But he – he, his work, or Valerie Ramey's, uh, it hasn't convinced the Keynesians. They haven't said, yeah, I guess I was wrong. No. They must have a counter. Well, one possibility is to say, well, so what if it uh, is smaller than one? At least it's bigger than zero. Right. The, the normal view of economists is that, at least in the long run, um, extra government spending crowds out mostly investment spending. And so it shrinks savings. It shrinks the capital stock in the very long run. So um, – Market-oriented economists will tend to believe that the multiplier is actually negative. So a lot of this debate goes on about whether it's whether the multiplier is bigger than one or less than one. Um, on some level, the most important question is, is it positive or negative? Um, once we get into the zero to one, that's a matter of debating how much we like government stuff versus non-government stuff. Right. If you're fighting a war and you're worried about your survival, you're thrilled to substitute refrigerators for tanks. Yes, if you definitely. think it's going to help you survive. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not – arguing here about whether defense spending is good or bad. We pr- Presumably, there are times when it's crucial. There's times when it's unnecessary. We're just talking about the economic impact because mm-hmm. whenever I write about this, I always get some commenter who says, uh, are you saying we shouldn't have fought the Nazis? That's not what we're talking about here. It's, it's, we're only asking, did the necessity to f- in, in many people's minds, to let, assume, let's assume we had to fight the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Did, what was the impact of that on the economy, not uh, on on the world or on the future of the United States? We're just asking what was the impact on the private economy. To me, the Keynesian story is it's supposed to stimulate the private economy because there are all these resources lying around doing nothing. It didn't. It shrunk the private economy. You can still argue, well, that's because it had to be so big. Of course, it eventually crowded things out. So it's not a refutation uh-huh. of Keynesianism for me. It's merely saying that, well, you can't use this example, which Keynesians always use, that GDP grew mm-hmm. during during the 40s. And my answer is, so what? Yeah, you can make GDP grow by building a lot of tanks and bombs and airplanes, and it was great for the industries and workers in those areas. The question is, did the Keynesian multiplier for the private sector, which is, again, one of these folklore stories that you hear – did that kick in? The answer is evidently not, although there's some dispute about consumption spending, I'm sure, in World War II. But I think the people who lived through it were pretty overwhelmingly uh, not happy with with their consumption experience. Yeah, and and it, and it appears from Ramey and Shapiro's work that the same thing happened in the wars that we've had since World War II. Uh-huh. Extra government spending is associated with shrinking private sector spending. Okay, so that's some evidence, but mm-hmm. it's it's – you said, well, positive a fraction, something between zero and one is better than nothing would be one cancer response. I'm sure they have quibbles or major complaints about the econometrics that was done and how it was – has anyone tried to redo her work, their work with a different set of assumptions? I have to say, um, first of all, I, I ha- I'm not an expert on her – on that line of work. But given the fact that I've looked – I've poked around quite a bit and have not seen anybody pushing for numbers bigger than one. It's an interesting so, question, at least yeah. in that – in the wartime 
type spending. Yes. Yep. Okay. But there are lots of studies that find bigger than one in not using uh, these this natural experiment approach, just taking all the data, not yes. just looking at wars, right? Yes. So um, the typical results that the Congressional Budget Office uses uh, when they generate their big multipliers come from more routine econometric studies um, where you just look and see, well, when people get extra big checks from the government, how does that affect their consumer spending? Um, and let's just sort of assume that that spending wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, so there's a number of these multipliers floating around, but I have to say that in the last five or ten years, all of the multipliers that I'm familiar with find something that I really wouldn't have expected before, which is that the multipliers for tax cuts are bigger than the multipliers for government spending. Yeah, that's kind of weird because you think it'd be symmetric. That could be a data issue or a measurement issue. Mm -hmm. Why do you th the people who find that? What, what's their? Do they have a story? Well, um, you know, the most famous one of these um, doesn't is um, Romer and Romer's study. Theirs doesn't directly compare this government is Christina spending to taxes. Romer, recent head of the Council of Economic Advisors, now back at Berkeley, and uh, her husband David Romer is that the right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, theirs doesn't look at government spending itself, but they found a tax multiplier of three. So they found that a, do a dollar of government a dollar of government tax cuts in the short run has um, increases GDP by. Three percent, and they used not a dollar, one uh, percent. Oh, three dollars. Oh, excuse me. I'm, I'm yeah. yes. So uh, one dollar of government uh, tax cuts um, is associated with three dollars of extra um, private sector Output. increase. Yes, uh, it's a surprisingly large number. Um, but other studies using traditional econometrics have found something similar. So Blanchard and Parati have a, a widely cited paper. This is Olivier Blanchard, former. Uh, who's an MIT economist, and um, they found a government spending multiplier smaller than the tax multiplier. Um, there's a new uni a University of Chicago economist whose name escapes me who has a similar result. And then on the flip side, uh, when it looks at when it comes to times when we want to shrink the government or shrink government budget deficits, um, Alicina has a study that has been widely attacked that showed. Um, that it's possible that government that uh, that expansionary fiscal contraction—that's the jargon we use. <laughs> expansionary fiscal contraction. Yes, it's possible that when the government uh, that when government spending shrinks as part of a deficit reduction plan, the private sector actually grows. That the animal spirits, Keynes's animal spirits, become awakened. <laughs> so a lot of people attacked that idea. Yeah. But even but and the OECD uh, came out with a study that was designed to attack it. But even their attack. There's a study that was designed to attack this idea that uh, spending cuts could grow the economy. They themselves found that when governments try to fix their long-run budget deficits by cutting government spending, there's only a small negative impact on the economy. When they try to cure their long-term budget deficits by tax increases, there's a big effect on the economy. And it's a not bigger a bigger negative effect. A bigger negative effect. So if you're trying to close your long-run budget gap, it's better to do it through government spending cuts than through tax increases. And again, this is the flip side of the multiplier debate, but right. it's telling us the same story that these other two studies have found, which is that um, spending cuts are uh, – that changes in government spending have small influences on the economy and tax changes have big influences on the economy. Now the uh, – yeah, I think the – paper that Christina Romer wrote with Jared Bernstein, who mm -hmm. was uh, 
Vice President Biden's economic advisor, the p- paper that predicted the 8% unemployment if the stimulus were not passed, mm-hmm. uh, I think they used a very high multiplier of – I think it was 1.5. Five two. Uh, mm-hmm. I always have to mention that. You know, tell the story of how do we know the riddle? How do we know economists have a sense of humor? Macroeconomists they use decimal points. They didn't use one point five. They use one point five two. Now I'm not sure that's <laughs> what that actual study used, but I've heard that number. That one point five two number was was in the air when mm-hmm. when we were talking about the stimulus. And and some people, some Keynesians would push for numbers even larger than one point five two. Sure. So uh, so so there's there there is a growing literature that's skeptical. Either about spending relative to uh, tax cuts, or uh, literally opt- optimistic about ta- uh, spending cuts as being stimulative. Uh, there's some a little bit of a natural experiment, at least talked about in England. Mm-hmm. Right, England has allegedly embraced austerity, meaning reducing government spending. Uh, I don't know if they really did. I haven't been following that, but that's the possible source of of some information. If yes. They did. Um, Sadly, the uh, Western world is going to be running this experiment a lot of times in the yeah. next few years, and so we'll we'll have a lot more data in the next five years, I'm guessing. Because a lot of governments don't have enough money to cover their promises, mm-hmm. right? They've made a lot of promises, especially to the elderly, and those are tough to keep. Demographically. Demographically, not, yes. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's move on to your study okay. with, with uh, Daniel Rothschild. So tell us what you did. Well, we actually did two And things. why you did it. Because yes. it's a little – what I what I like about it is no doubt it's flawed. It's mm-hmm. imperfect. It doesn't answer every question you'd like it to answer. But you did something that most economists don't do. You went around and asked people what they did, which is interesting. Yes. Well, when um, within just a few weeks of the stimulus bill being passed, uh, uh, my uh, colleagues at the Mercatus Center decided that this was a chance to do a, a once-in-a-lifetime study of how the stimulus was influencing the economy. So uh, a number of us batted around ideas about what would be a good a good project to work on, and the Mercatus Center has worked on a number of projects related to the stimulus. One that I threw out was I said that um, we should actually go talk to people. I said in the last in the last decade or so, um, economists have been comfortable with uh, studies where um, economists go and interview people or send out surveys and ask decision makers how they reacted to the economy. My favorite example of this is uh, Truman Bewley's book. Why Wages Don't Fall During a Recession. So in the early 1990s recession, he was a professor at Yale. He had written many theoretical papers about uh, why unemployment might exist and why it might get worse in a recession. Um, Fancy game theoretic models, heavily mathematized. When the early 90s recession started rolling around, he saw the economy weaken and he thought, this might be a chance for me to actually go talk to some business people, talk to some union leaders, talk to some hiring managers. And that's what he did. Um, and this book is, uh, there's a, it's a, it's a, a good sized book, perhaps about 400 pages, but there's a shorter version of it available on the St. Louis Federal Reserve's website where he distills some of his big ideas. We'll put a link up to that. And, um, what he found was that businesses are really concerned about fairness. They're really concerned about their reputation. And so they're terrified of giving across-the-board wage cuts to their workers during a recession, even if that would save all of their workers' jobs. So instead, they choose to fire – instead of cutting everybody's wages 5%, they decide to fire 5% of the workers or lay them off. Um, he heard this again and again, that perceptions – that, work, that, that uh, business managers, business owners thought 
that morale would be hurt at the firm if they cut everybody's wages 5%. So morale is a repeated theme. But he learned this through talking to people. Um, he learned this by actually sitting in room, by driving around Connecticut and uh, getting out of his office, which is something that economists don't do that often. Yeah, I have to say I, I'm somewhat skeptical. It's, it, to me, the, the Bewley story illustrates some of the dangers of surveys, which you know, what people say about – especially about – there's one thing to, to ask them what they actually did. To ask them why they did what they did, I think you're treading on dangerous turf. Uh, it could be merely that they knew that there was at least 5% of the labor force that was un, not very fit for their jobs. This was a nice time to, for morale relative to other times mm-hmm. to fire them. And so, but they tell you a fairness story because that sounds better. But That's possible, yes. Put that to the side. It, it just it, – the point I think is interesting is that a theorist – Decided to get his his uh, hands dirty, as so to speak, in, in this way is is fascinating, and he should be applauded for it. I, I agree with you. So, what did you do? So, um, the first part of our study involved interviews. Uh, we sent out teams uh, led by Dan Rothschild to five different metropolitan areas in the U.S. and uh, uh, they made phone calls to very to stimulus recipients just using the recovery.gov list. Um, and ask them if they could come by and talk for maybe 20 minutes. Recovery.gov being the government's website summarizing the stimulus impact and s- different state impacts, etc. Yes. They have, ad- they have mailing addresses. Um, they have dollar amounts. They have the names of the organization. So quite, it's quite comprehensive. So more people should be making use of this. And uh, so they, they just called up people, asked if they could drop by for 20 to 30 minutes for a talk. Uh, almost all of them, almost all the people who said yes agreed to be uh, tape recorded. We gave them all anonymity. And um, we have trans- we have uh, recordings of these interviews. And uh, so I spent some time listening to them. Uh, our teams wrote digests of all of the – have written digests of all of the interviews. And I spent some time looking at their, their notes. And uh, Rothschild and I talked about this, about what sort of the big lessons were that they saw. So how many firms did they talk to? So in the the interview-based study, which is separate from our written surveys that we mailed out, uh, we interviewed 85 organizations. Uh, They were an almost equal mix between uh, nonprofits and businesses, private businesses, with a small number of government agencies as well. And give me the flavor of what kind of businesses and nonprofits there were. Now, of course, there could be a bias in terms of who said yes. Exactly, yes. Uh, Many, there are many places bias could come in, but that would be one of the worries. Uh, so you don't know exactly how representative are, but you know something about the universe of people who said yes and who you were interviewed. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, a typical uh, private sector business would be a government contractor, uh, a, a, a construction contractor uh, who might do mostly work for the federal government. Some work for state governments. Some work for the private sector. So they take a lot of different jobs. The federal government is just one of their, one of their bosses every once in a while. And uh, so we'd sit down or my team would sit down with uh, this person and ask them a few questions. Um, how, how efficient was the stimulus funding? Uh, did the money come in when they said it would? Um, what did you have to do to get it? Yes. Right. What did you have to do to get it? What were the reporting requirements like? We heard a lot of complaints about the reporting requirements and how difficult they were at the beginning. But apparently the federal government fixed that and made it quite a, lo- quite a bit easier, quite a bit more user-friendly after a while. Now, the, I'm at the Mercatus Center also, as, as you are. And we are, of course, a, a market-oriented, free market-oriented uh, research center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did you – did you worry? And if so, uh, what did you do about the fact that 
many of the people who were sent out to do the interviews were unsympathetic to the stimulus, um, which I assume they were. Well, you know, when people asked us, um, you know, we, we, we would always say that we were from the Mercatus Center, a market-oriented research center affiliated with George Mason University. And um, I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of the people who met with us must have done a Google check. That's what I would do if somebody were coming in to talk to me. Well, that's because um, you, you're an academic. Is that true? I think a lot of them probably just said, okay, it sound, it's a university. Yeah. Uh, I don't have time. See, I, I, people in the real world actually work like all the time. Uh, <laughs> that's they, true. Well, we work less – during the day and more at other times. So, mm-hmm. so, but if you're in a like what's called a job, uh-huh. uh, they tend to just their your 20 minutes was already a big deal. Yeah. I don't think they spent another five or ten looking around reading any studies of the brigade. I'm just guessing. That's probably. I'm more true, interested yeah. though, but I'm more. I understand that th- sure. there's one kind of bias would be that the interviewee might try to please you or not, depending on the perceived attitudes of the center. I'm more worried about the team itself. Shaping the interview to have it go in a direction that would be anti-stimulus. Well, well, we, we asked open-ended questions, so I think that's part of the way we neutralize that possibility. I mean, we would ask them how many how many workers did you did you hire? How many jobs did you create or save? Um, we would ask them if things, it, you know, if you're asking them an open-ended question like how did how did uh, the reporting system work? They can tell you it worked well or it worked poorly. So on the case pretty, of pretty on the on the case of and by the way the, the the transcripts and and actual recordings are they available? Unfortunately, we have to keep them anonymous, so we're not making them available now. Okay, so that's awkward. But yes, okay. So let's put that question to the side. Our surveys are all available from our thirteen hundred respondents, but the written surveys. We're going to talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. That's a different part of the study. But the, the I mentioned the transcripts and recordings because it would be nice to hear any tones and vo- voice, et yes, cetera. That but, would be great. Okay, let's put that put yeah. that to the side. Let me ask a different question. Uh, you're sitting. Who are you talking to at the company? Who's the person on the other side of the table? Um, sometimes, Typically. It's, sometimes it's the uh, president of the organization, the owner or co-owner. So we, when we spoke with some uh, small engineering firms, um, it would be the, the two owners of the firm would come to the interview and just sit there for 20 minutes to talk with us. So if you ask them, how many people did you hire in response to the stimulus, would they say, I have to look that up? Would they say, oh, about 100? Did they – would they have that number easily – I mean, is that a, a number that they made up or that they actually Business thought people thought this through. So I'd say some of, the, some of the people gave us a response that was just what they put on the government form. Um, and these were people who would have the answer right in their head. Oh, we saved this many jobs. Um, the government's formula, though, uh, just took it for granted that if the government spent a certain amount of money um, and if there were certain people who were working on that government project, those were jobs created or saved by the stimulus. Right. So the government just took but it that for sounds granted. Like, that sounds like a good answer. What's wrong with that? Um, well, it's possible. It's We don't know what would have happened otherwise. Okay, that's so, one problem. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies uh, told us that things had been slow, but they still had their jobs. Things had been slow, and then the stimulus came along and gave us more work to do. So in that setting, um, it's hard to imagine that the government stimulus actually either created or saved those jobs. Nobody really was hired. It was just that workers who were sitting at work you know, playing Tetris or checking their email were instead... They, like the academics we were uh, talking yes. about a minute ago, yeah. Yes. Instead, they would actually do a lot of work during this period of the stimulus. So we don't know if they, if they would have uh, lost their jobs otherwise. They were working beforehand without a lot of work to do. And workers that were firms that actually expanded, of course, we don't know whether those workers, where they came from, we don't know whether they were unemployed before. We're going to come to that in the, in the, in the second study. Mm-hmm. But summarize what you learned... 
or think you learned from the interview part of this project? Well, the first thing – what surprised you? The first thing we learned um, was that when people talk to us about where their workers came from, because some firms were smaller, medium-sized firms where they really knew the workers, um, it was surprising how many people – how few people came from unemployment lines. These companies would tell us um, – I can think of one federal agency, actually, that did some hiring based on the stimulus. Um, they said, you know, we hired five people based on the, with the stimulus funds. Two of them were retirees from our own agency that we brought back under a special program that let them keep their retirement benefits while earning a salary. Nice. One was transferred over from another agency. One was a part-timer that we made full-time. And one person uh, switched over from a private sector job. So if you count people ca- being brought from I'll, – I'll count somebody going from part-time to full-time as a real – I'll call it a, a point changer. five. I'm going to call it a point five. I'll call that a point five. Um, uh, the rest are uh, quite a bit more ambiguous. And th- I'm not cherry-picking that, right? That's, that's the kind of story that came up quite a lot. Now, defenders of the stimulus would point out that – that one person who came from the private sector mm-hmm. who was employed beforehand. So of those, of those five, you got a 0.5 mm-hmm. uh, increase in, in employment mm-hmm. net relative because the other four and a half already had jobs. But you could argue that the one person – and we're going to come back to this when we talk about the interview data, I mean the survey data. The one person who came from the private sector, that firm now has an opening. Mm-hmm. And Definitely. we don't know whether that firm went out and hired somebody. Well, it's possible that the firm posted an opening as soon as that worker left. But a lot of what we've seen in this recession is businesses getting by with fewer workers, right? Productivity um, keeps increasing. And as a result, uh, even a a market-oriented economist would say that maybe the business has learned to produce just as much stuff with fewer workers. Um, A Keynesian response is that actually in recessions, workers hold on to a lot of Excuse me, firms hold on to a lot of workers in recessions. Uh, Keynesians call this labor hoarding. So you're afraid to let go of your core workers during a recession, even though things are really slow. And as a result, if somebody walks out the door during a recession, they're actually doing you a favor. That's one less person that you have to worry about firing. So it's... But it, but it could be the other. It's, and it's absolutely possible that sometimes they'll go and try to hire someone. And as we'll see in the survey results... Um, it looks like it might actually be kind of hard to hire someone. Okay, we're gonna let's let's turn to that. So, what we've been talking about so far is the was it eighty five? Eighty five. Eighty five face to face interviews with business executives and nonprofit execs about their experience as stimulus uh, recipients, and that study has been published by the Mercatus Center, and the title is uh, "No Such Thing as Shovel Ready." And the reason that's the title is? Uh, Because uh, the president actually used that term to describe what was going on with the stimulus. He said the big thing he learned from the first year of the stimulus program is that there's no such thing as shovel-ready projects. And why is that relevant for the survey results? Well, it means that it's it's hard for the government to, to ramp up quickly and find a lot of unused workers and unused organizations. Part of what we found in the interviews is that um, Government, the government agencies often went to their – the organizations they trusted. They went to the firms they trusted. They went to the contractors they, experience they trusted. With. People they had experience they with. They didn't hire a new firm that said, I'm going to start up a new firm, hire 20 new workers and – No. 
And the, that the was smart, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't want to raise, waste taxpayer dollars. They yeah. didn't want boondoggles. And because they didn't want boondoggles, they went to trusted firms. And trusted firms are often already busy. It's also convenient. But. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to the second part of the project, which is a written survey, a mail survey, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happened? What did you do there? There we sent out um, uh, two-page surveys uh, and to thousands of stimulus recipients. Again, we went off recovery.gov. How many are there altogether, by the way? How many oh, recipients goodness. are there roughly? Oh, goodness. That I don't have an absolute I want to say 13,000 or is that how many? I'm that's cr- a, yes, that's, 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 that's got to be in the ballpark because after we did a, a screening – uh, there were 8,000 left in our screen. Okay, so there were about 13,000 firms. I'm not sure what you should say so far, but at the point you're doing the survey, there were about 13,000 firms that received stimulus. You mailed you, – you, you threw out 5,000 as not – who you didn't mail to because they were very small or – if I remember. The very smallest ones uh, we didn't send anything to if you received less than $100,000. In stimulus funding, we didn't send it to you. Also, if you were part of the state uh, – if you were part of the governor's office, we didn't send it to you. Um, so we, we, we wanted to, we wanted to send surveys to people who were close to the spending yeah. and we knew that governor's uh, office weren't hiring people. They were sending it out they to were somebody sending else checks out to other people and we wouldn't be able to get the, get information yeah. on those folks. So, um, but local governments, we sent them to county governments. We sent them to nonprofits. We sent them to, and mostly, uh, private, uh, private sector firms. So by the way, I just have to mention nonprofits don't wield a lot of shovels. So it's. No, I, I, I'm kind of intrigued by that. I think most of us incorrectly think that the government we, – we saw on the highway, you'd see road building and other things. That's the stimulus money. And of course, mm-hmm. a very tiny percentage of the $820 billion of era of the stimulus money went toward what we would call infrastructure or, or real actual – whether the shovels were ready or not to shovels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it went to food banks. It went uh-huh. to people running elder care centers, uh, nonprofits that were doing things that a lot of us would approve of. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So how many surveys did you send out? Uh, we sent out a total of uh, 8,000 surveys. How many came back? Um, we had uh, 1,300 responses, but I have to say that those 8,000 surveys, each of them included three pieces of paper. Um, one piece of paper was for the business itself to answer, and two, per- two pieces of paper were for workers to answer. They said, hand these to two workers of your choice. Okay. And so we're basically getting a look inside of these firms. We don't know who's responding because those are all kept anonymous. Um, there's no identifying information, but uh, it's getting us a chance to look inside of these firms. Okay. So when, so when I say how many responded, of course, sometimes you only got one piece of paper back, I assume. and Yes. Sometimes you get all three. And- oh, and then we gave them separate envelopes, so you didn't actually know. So that gave people further anonymity. So if a, if a worker didn't want to send it in. No, he doesn't have to send it in. So how many pieces of paper came back? Uh, 1,300 pieces of paper. Okay. So in a way, that's extraordinarily good. I, uh-huh. People who don't have a lot of experience with surveys, f- 5% is phenomenal for a mail survey of, of some kinds. But in this kind, you could argue you got – that's about what you got because yeah, there were three pieces yeah. of paper, 8,000 places got sent. That's 24,000. You got a little over 1,000 back. And Not bad. And, and the point that I'd like to make is that – the, 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 we shouldn't have been the ones to have to do this, right? Every single question we put on these surveys were ones that the federal government could have easily put on their quarterly stimulus reports. They could have asked every um, stimulus recipient of the workers you hired how many came from the unemployment lines. Okay, so let's take let's take that question because that's the one I think is the most interesting one. I'm sure there are other things to report. 
First question is, of the 1,300 resp- or so, 1,200, whatever it is, over 1,000 responses, how many of those were employer responses? Do you remember um, roughly? It's uh, right around a third. Okay. So you had yeah. – so let's say – let's call it 400. You have 400 uh, companies write back to tell you about their experience as stimulus recipients. And one of the questions was, uh, how many of the workers did you hire and how many of them were unemployed before you hired them? How would they know? Actually, we didn't ask them that question. We asked the workers that question. We asked the workers, ah, okay. um, when were you hired at this firm? And then we asked them, um, if they were hired after January 2009, we asked them a series of questions. And one of the questions we asked them was, what were you doing before you worked at this firm? Okay. We asked them, did you uh, work at another job immediately beforehand? Were you unemployed? Retired. Were you in school? Yeah. Uh, or out of the labor force? Living on, you know. Thief, you know, the, the, what we call the, un, the, the uncovered sector in uh, some circles because uh, they don't get so – they're not covered by social security. Sometimes it's called the uncovered sector. Uh, so – but you also asked the employer. We asked the employer a questions about what the hiring side was like. We did ask them um, how big was the stimulus compared to your annual revenue? How many workers did you hire? And what was the size of your labor force? We actually broke it out the way the government does. We sort of asked them how many did you how many workers did you keep from firing, how many did you hire, and how many did you bring back? How many laid I mean, off people did you bring back? Of course, keep from firing is a su- very subjective. Very subjective. Measure. But yes, but, but we, we we put some we put some weight on what entrepreneurs and what business people say about their own firms. Yeah. We also asked them if it was harder to find good people comp- now compared to before the recession. So again, you're asking them to make a judgment call, but these are the people who are making these decisions. So we asked them, is it harder or easier to find good workers compared to before the recession? In theory, it should be easier. Much easier. Because there's all got- this big pool of unemployed labor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what were the – give me the bullet points for uh, – one more point about, about methodology. Because it was anonymous, you did not – you were not able to compare employer responses to employee responses. No, right? we could not. Yeah. One could make a very crude comparison if we looked at people in the same states. Yeah, but yeah, so yeah, that's that. about it. Yeah. Okay, so what what did you find? Uh, well, we found that uh, only forty two percent of the workers uh, came from unemployment. Forty seven percent said before they got this job they were working somewhere else. So more workers. And where the rest came from? School, school retirement, school and out of the labor force. So um, small number. Why would you say only forty two percent? Could say. Forty-two percent of the of the jobs created by the stimulus and the recipients, and you're very, you point out in the paper, you're always going to add the qualifier in the recipients of the survey who responded. Yeah, people responded. It's a voluntary survey. You don't know yeah. how whether this captures this is this is a very crude estimate mm-hmm. of what the stimulus mm-hmm. actually did, but it's interesting. Yes. it tells you something. You learn something. And from it'd it. be great if the government replicated our results and found out that our numbers were the same or different. Replicate your, replicated your survey. Replicate your survey. Yeah. Yes. Um, so why do you say only 42%? I mean, that's uh, those are new jobs. That's great. Well, uh, we can't tell really if they're new jobs because of the, the problem that we don't know what would have happened otherwise. But True. here's one thing we do know. We do know that in recessions, in normal recessions in the U.S., um, more people get hired from unemployment than usual. Um, on average in the U.S., uh, when firms are hiring, about half of the people they hire – are, come from unemployment lines, and about half are job switchers coming over from other firms. So even in a healthy economy, even with a healthy job market, it's very common for uh, people to be hired from unemployment. 
right? Um, there, there are always jobs breaking up. There are people who are moving from one town to another. So it's always possible to hire unemployed people even when the labor market is quite healthy. We would think that in a recession, it would be much easier than usual to hire workers from unemployment lines, right? If the stimulus was actually targeted at areas of weakness in the economy, um, then we should be able to do much better than average. So they, so actually, did they actually did a little bit worse, a little bit than, worse than average. Which is either a statement about stimulus or a statement about this particular recession. We it's, don't know. And it's possible that it's a statement about this particular stimulus. Yeah, that's right? true. So um, a lot of us noted early on when the stimulus bill first came out that a lot of it seemed to be targeted at highly skilled sectors. You heard a lot about these green jobs, for instance. Going to engineers sometimes. Or Yes. I, I was always – Taken aback by how much went to, say, universities who do health research. Yes. I like health research. We do a lot of it already. Doing a little bit more isn't the worst thing government could do with my money. But I don't think it's put – I always said it doesn't put a lot of unemployed Nevada carpenters back to work. No. If Washington University in St. Louis gets to increase its spending on Parkinson's research. Yeah. Top medical researchers do not have very high unemployment rates. Yeah. Like zero. Like zero. Very close to zero. Yeah. Very low. In so, fact, it's a, gener- it's a good point we're making generally that – that the unemployment in this recession, as in other recessions, is very, very different for different educational groups. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you've been to college, and then even more so if you have advanced degree, an advanced degree, your unemployment rate is very low. I think the college rate is around 5%, which is, quote, low. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for non-college, if you haven't finished high school, if you've just finished high school, it's, it's over 10 and maybe over 15, I think, for some, maybe for some education groups. Yeah, and in our survey, um, half of the respondents had at least a bachelor's degree and a fourth had a graduate degree. So stimulus money appeared to go, as casual evidence would, would have suggested beforehand, stimulus money went to, a, to hire a lot of very skilled people. The federal government tends to hire skilled people. But that should, could also just be because the owner of the firm said, I'm going to give it to my buddy who's the Ad- engineer, the absolutely head of whatever, yes. and he'll just fill it out and I'll be fine. Yes. And go down to the guy working the, the backhoe. Yeah, we, we don't know. We don't know who, who within the firm decided to respond. So, so uh, to come back to your point about uh, roughly half of new jobs in healthy times going to, um, to unemployed workers, and here it was 42% mm-hmm. below the – Surprisingly, it should have been above the, the usual. Yes. Uh, how do we know that about healthy times? Where does that data? Where do those data come from? Um, this is all a, a lot of data that's grown out of the work of uh, Mortensen and Pissaritas, who won the Nobel Prize uh, a year and a half ago, I believe, about two years ago now, and um, the work of John Haltewanger um, of the University of Maryland. So John Haltewanger actually was the first person with his co-authors to actually start collecting data on labor market dynamics, on what we now call job churn. Uh, they're, they're the ones who have created the new stylized fact that we didn't even know of um, 20 years ago, which is that on average in the U.S., there are about 4 million jobs yeah. created and destroyed every month. That's an amazing number. That's an amazing amount of churn. Either by firms that are shrinking or going out of business. Mm-hmm. And then in healthy times, slightly more than 4 million jobs are created every month because – Firms are either expanding or getting started. Mm-hmm. And on so, unhealthy times, it's below $4 million. Yes. So it's, it's amazing that, um, that the amount of churn that goes on in this economy, and it's, it's through the work of, of Haltewanger and his co-authors, getting uh, the federal government, state governments, and governments in other countries to start keeping track of this. They're the reason we now think of labor markets as being so dynamic. So um, the, in, in America, the, the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, has the – I think it's called the JOLTS. The JOLTS, right? Yes. Which is relatively recent, and mm-hmm. it's a response to this work. Is that right? It's a response to this work. Yeah. Job, 
Job Opening and Labor Turnover Survey. Okay. Fantastic data. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Now, let's go back to your results. So that's one of the things you found. 42% of the people mm-hmm. who were hired were hired from the unemployed. Uh, 58% came from either other jobs or out of the la- who were out of the labor force. Mm-hmm. Some of those out of the labor force presumably could have been discouraged workers, though. They could have been, but they, they, were, they were a tiny fraction. So I think a lot of people who were – in their own, who according to the government message was, according to the government definitions, were out of the labor force, they thought of themselves as unemployed. They used the common sense definition of unemployed. Uh huh, it's interesting. There were way yeah, right. They weren't people. BLS. Yeah, they weren't yeah. respondent. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, now, Matthew Iglesias uh, in his, on his webpage suggested that, that, that actually 42% was a big number. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, well, when unemployment's only 10% of the economy, Anything over ten percent is is gravy. What's your response to that? Well, um, part of it is that uh, the point I made before, which is that uh, when somebody leaves a firm, when somebody switches jobs, um, we're not sure. We don't have much reason to believe that uh, that person's going to get replaced anytime soon. Our data gives some evidence to show that there really was across the board labor market tightness. So we have the fact that you know there was a high rate of, of job poaching or job switching. We also know from the survey that. Um, Businesses said it was at least as hard or harder to find good people compared to before the recession. It was a slim majority. About 15% said it was harder to find good people, and about 37 or so percent said it was no easier, just as easy or just as hard as before the recession. So you would have How thought – How many said it was easier? Uh, a little bit less than half, something like 47%. Something so like that. that was the the most common response. It was easier to find people. That was the modal response. Yeah. But so um, – So you're saying that's – you're surprised that's a relatively low number, even though it was the most common response. Yes, because when you're when I'm seeing most people are saying it's as hard or harder, it's that it's that that truncation is what I didn't expect. Yeah. So I'm I would surprised. have thought that if if the stimulus were well targeted, then the firms who were responding to our survey would be telling us overwhelmingly it's harder to it's easier to find good people than beforehand. And we're just once we got the money, we just went out and scooped them up. Just scooped them up. Yes. So you know my my thought on the Iglesias point, which is. I think an important point to make uh, uh, in terms of just how you think about unemployment and aggregate demand, Keynesian term you hear a lot, mm-hmm. uh, is that workers aren't homogeneous. They're not all the same. Mm-hmm. If you think of them as all the same, then there, for every 90 workers are working, there's 10 marbles that aren't in somebody's pouch. You just got to go f- – the reason they're not in somebody's pouch, the reason they don't have it, a job is that – they're off in a corner somewhere or there's imperfect information or people haven't matched to the – but it could be that those unemployed workers don't have the skills that most people want to use. At least what you're suggesting is your finding is, is that what skills you have matters a lot. It's not just being a body. Yes, this is a point Labor's that – Labor's not homogeneous. Yes, this is a point that um, Stephen Horowitz, the economist, did a great job responding to in, in a blog post where he pointed out that you can't just assume that workers are fungible, that yeah. job skills are fungible. Um, search takes a long time. Um, any of us who've hired folks know just how hard it is to find the right person for the job. There's a reason why labor economists often talk about the labor market as being a lot like the dating market. Search takes a long time, and finding a good fit is um, uh, more the exception than the rule. And Arnold Kling at EconLog has written very eloquently on what he calls patterns of sustainable specialization in trade mm-hmm. that you know, if you're an unemployed carpenter – you might have to find a whole new area to be mm-hmm. productive in, and carpentry may not be a viable alternative for the next few years. 
people who've defended the stimulus casual conversations with me say, well, you know, you go to that construction firm, you see them on the highway, they, construction workers can go work on that highway job. But my suspicion, and I think it's somewhat consistent with your finding, is mm-hmm. that I'm not so sure that a person who can lay drywall can uh, put asphalt down on a major uh, American highway. Yeah, their, their resume is going to go low in the pile. This is a point that Gary Becker made early on when the stimulus was being talked about, that workers across – to sec- sectors that economists think are workers should be able to switch across – uh, that doesn't really work that way on the ground. That would be like somebody telling us, well, um, you're an economics department. Why don't you just hire a sociologist? You're both social scientists. Right. The problem with that criticism, though, and this is where I uh, find the, the, the mystery, is that when the things are good uh-huh. and when 4 million jobs are getting destroyed every month and another 4.2 uh-huh. are getting created, somehow people just move in and out of jobs. You quit your job. You don't worry about finding a job. In good times, you're a, you know the tech bubble bursts or all these unemployed mm-hmm. uh, web designers because now web designing doesn't pay much. It used to be a cool novel skill. Now it's worthless because there's so many templates that a, that a nine-year-old can create a web page. But those people, most of them found new work elsewhere They or they tooled up. And yeah. So why is it – you're saying how hard it is to find these matches. In healthy times, it's not so hard. I think you're right. That's a that's a very good question. But let me let me talk a little about this this idea of the government hiring people um, from unemployment lines. Um, if you just believe, if you just assume that Keynesianism works, then the forty two percent forty two percent being hired from unemployed should might sound like good news to you. But we should remember that in a healthy economy, when the job market is tight or hot, um, the government could go in and hire workers quite easily. Right? Mm-hmm. If a, a massive government spending program can always scoop up workers. If they and pay enough. If you pay enough. And um, so we saw people switch coming out of unemployment at about the rates you would see in a, in a healthy economy. And on the question of paying enough, we actually asked workers how who, the job switchers um, or the job – whether the, uh, the whether they were unemployed or whether they were job switchers. We asked them, how are your pay and benefits here compared to your last job? Good question. And um, – on the pay issue, there was a slight tendency for people to say that pay was a little better than at their last job. Definitely true for the job switchers, for the people who were poached. Um, people who were unemployed were taking pay cuts on average. But hmm. on benefits across the board, um, there was a, people were twice as likely to say that um, they had better, be- better benefits now than in their old job. So about 40% said their benefits were better, about 40% said the same, and 20% said worse. So the the, the stylized fact that people are – People put a lot of attention on benefits. Seems to be true, and it looks as though when the when the government and government contractors wanted to get good workers under the stimulus, what they did was they kept about the same pay package, much better benefits, and attracted some people in from other and bid them away from yeah. other firms. Yeah, and that was part of my other criticism of the stimulus logic, which is very similar to the steel story I told earlier, which is if you increase the demand for medical researchers, not only you're not going to put a lot of uh, steel worker, a lot of Nevada construction workers back to work, you're going to raise the wages of medical researchers or the compensation and make it more costly for other private firms. So if anything, and people say oh, maybe other jobs were created elsewhere, it's probable they were not created because they were got more expensive, those skills. Yeah, that's why part of the reason we titled this the Supply Side of the Recovery Act. Um, we, If there are more workers working for the government – um, then it may be the case that there are just fewer workers available in the private sector. Um, this is this is supply side crowding out. 
A lot of people who criticize Keynesian um, spending will talk about how there might be some financial crowding out. Like if the government's borrowing a lot more money, that's less money that can be borrowed by the private sector. I'd like to make the point that what we found evidence of here is that when workers are pulled toward the government sector, especially when the best workers are pulled over to the government sector, those are workers that aren't available to the private sector anymore. Now, uh, I'll be interested in talking to some people on the other side of this issue, people mm-hmm. who defend uh, Keynesian stimulus, and I'm always eager to find them, and I'm sure they'll have some critical things to say about your survey. Sure. As, as we said earlier, uh, it's an imperfect survey. Mm-hmm. It's Many things are limit its applica- applicability to to make universal statements about the stimulus package. But it's a really interesting thing that you did. Um, uh, so I salute you for, for, what you for what you did. It's cool. Thanks very much. And again, I, I hope that the federal government um, takes some of the lessons from us and, and asks these kinds of questions to uh, stimulus recipients in the future. Now, what kind of reaction have you received? I mentioned Matt Iglesias who was critical on the web, other uh, – Bloggers have, have been critical. Have you received any feedback from other academics or uh, any hate mail? Uh, anything interesting that you want to share with the audience? I've got. I've received a couple of nice emails from uh, government contractors um, who've given me some real insight. At their, it's almost as if I have my eighty sixth and eighty seventh interviews now. So <laughs> people have been very insightful and tell me how how job markets worked and how the government contracting system worked when the government's trying to ramp up on short notice. Um, some other academics have sent me some nice, have had some nice things to say, um, and I'm glad it's gotten some attention in um, the mainstream media. Are you doing planning to do anything similar down the road? Well, uh, I definitely we're definitely going to work on a, a full blown academic paper that probably combines both both papers together to sort of uh, do fancier econometrics that economists care about, and that just compares a few more of the hypotheses that we were able to test. We asked people, for instance, um, how much they cut back their spending when they were unemployed and how much they um, borrowed money or depleted their savings when they were unemployed. So we're able to test some of Milton Friedman's ideas about the permanent income hypothesis. We asked a number of other questions. My guest today has been Garrett Jones. Garrett, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.